If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 1. If you have been wondering about our sanctuary renovation, you can tell we've started a little early. And uh, this is our new style, so we're, we're excited about it. This is, uh, there are going to be animals all over the place by the time we get back in here at the end of the summer. Uh, no, this is uh, put together by Charles Newsom, and it's in preparation for our Vacation Bible School. We'll take some time at the conclusion of the service to talk more and pray about that. Really looking forward uh, to what the Lord is going to be doing uh, starting tomorrow morning, about 9 o'clock, in the lives of so many children that God will gather here in this place for Vacation Bible School. Uh, you may know the name J. Vernon McGee. A noted Bible teacher, radio personality, Texas native. I know that many of you have his commentary series because I've seen it on your bookshelves in your homes. Uh, he is known as the Through the Bible uh, teacher. And he said that the greatest compliment, in fact, he said the only significant compliment he had ever received is in his entire ministry uh, was when he was a young pastor, young preacher, teacher, uh, preaching somewhere in Georgia at a country church in a rural setting. And he said it was a small crowd, but when the message was over, uh, one elderly gentleman made his way out of the crowd and came up to Dr. McGee and was uh, just overwhelmed with emotion. It was very difficult for him to speak, but he said this, Dr. McGee, my, I did not know Jesus was so wonderful. And Dr. McGee said that that's what he strived to hear uh, the rest of his ministry. And what my goal is this morning, and for this entire series of messages, and really for every message, is that at the conclusion of this time, that you might say, my, I didn't know that Jesus was so wonderful. We said last week we were going to take the summer and spend it in the Gospel of Mark and just learn how wonderful is Jesus. And so we looked at the first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark last week. We're going to pick up in verse 9 and look at three more today. The Scripture says in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. John the Baptist, we call him, and we spoke of him last week. Verse 10, as soon as he came up out of the water, as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is an amazing passage of scripture. Right here, we see John, we see Jesus, we see the Holy Spirit, we see God the Father. Everybody's right here in these three verses. And really, it, it causes us to ask some very important questions. And so this morning, I just want to ask some questions, three questions in fact, two that are pretty obvious and one maybe a little less so, but three questions. And in these three questions, I think we're going to be led to say, my, I know never knew Jesus was so wonderful. So the first question, the first very obvious question is this, why in the world was Jesus baptized? 
If you think about it, why was Jesus baptized? That's no, that, 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 there, there's no obvious answer to that. You and I are baptized to celebrate our salvation. We're baptized to remember that we were guilty of sin and we needed our sin to be washed away because of the work of Christ. We were baptized because the old person has died and a new person has risen. We're baptized for reasons that just aren't true of Jesus. Jesus could not have been baptized for the same reasons that we are baptized. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, there are a lot of good answers, correct answers to that question. Jesus, we could say, was baptized to set an example. Set an example of how we celebrate the work of God the Father in our lives. Jesus was celebrating that, and so we celebrate that. And so he was setting an example. Another reason Jesus was baptized was to identify with our need. You know, the whole role of Christ on earth was to come and identify with us. He came and he died for our sin. He died in our place. And we could say that baptism was a way of identifying with the need that we have, the forgiveness of sins that he did not have. We could say correctly that Jesus was baptized as a commissioning for his ministry. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. For three years, he's going to teach, he's going to perform miracles, uh, he is going to interact with people, then he's going to be arrested, crucified, buried, resurrected. But this is the beginning. And this, in the very beginning, Jesus is commissioned by the Father and by the Holy Spirit to do this very important work that really all of history hinges upon. So we could say that this is a commissioning. And I think all three of those would be true, but I think primarily the reason Jesus was baptized was to look forward to his crucifixion and resurrection. I want you to know that the central event in history, in all of history, in the world history, in my history, in your history, the central pivot event is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And so when Jesus was baptized, he was looking forward to the day that he would be crucified and the day that he would be resurrected. When, when Jesus went back into the water, it looked forward to the day he would die. And when he came out of the water, it looked forward to the day that he would be resurrected. His baptism looked forward to the crucifixion and resurrection, just as our baptism looks back to the crucifixion and the resurrection. In fact, Jesus even spoke on two occasions of his crucifixion and called it a baptism, Luke 12, 50, Mark 10, 38, Jesus said, I'm about to be baptized with a difficult baptism. He's talking about his crucifixion. And so the crucifixion is pictured by the baptism of Jesus. So when we witness a baptism here in our Baptist, baptistry, we ought to look back to the crucifixion resurrection of Christ, and we should celebrate that, just as his baptism looked forward to that pivot point in history and celebrated all that that would mean. So why was Jesus baptized to highlight the crucifixion, the resurrection, that most important event in all of history? Now, that's that question answered. What's another question we could ask? But the second question takes a little longer. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? 
We see here in these three verses that the father is mentioned. It says the father is speaking from heaven to Jesus. It says that the Holy Spirit is, is, is mentioned. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven like a dove to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is mentioned. And of course, Jesus is mentioned. Jesus is baptized. And so right here in these three verses, we see the whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this gives us a great opportunity to just pause and talk about what that means. What is the Trinity and who is Jesus? Now, we can't explain everything there is to know about the Trinity in a subpoint of a subpoint of a Sunday morning message. Uh, people have written volumes and volumes about this and only begun to touch on all that it means. But, but, but we can give some uh, explanation. Uh, the Trinity, uh, that we serve one God in three persons, is a, a central truth, a central doctrine uh, to everything that we believe. Uh, it is a difficult doctrine to understand. Uh, Augustine, uh, an early Christian leader, fourth century Christian leader, uh, said something and nobody said it better since. Uh, he said, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. So this is a, this is a hard thing to understand. But I'll tell you the key to understanding this doctrine uh, is the same as the key to understanding every doctrine in Scripture is that revelation trumps reasoning. Now listen to that. It's important. Revelation, what God has revealed to us in his word, trumps reasoning. Now we need to reason. God's given us a mind and we need to be able to think things through. We ought to investigate things. We ought to approach the Bible in a rational, logical way. But revelation is where it starts. God will reveal certain truths to us and we are to reason through the lens of those truths. We don't reason them away. They are the stakes in the ground. That's where we start. And so instead of trying in our minds just to imagine and just to reason out what the Trinity is, we just need to look to Scripture. And it shouldn't surprise us that sometimes we're going to find things that are difficult to understand. Uh, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 9, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so obviously there are going to be things that make sense in the mind of God that we're going to struggle with reasoning those in our minds. But if we'll start with the revelation, what God has revealed, instead of starting with our reason, then we will we will be better able to grasp these important truths and uh, the, the Trinity is one of those. Now, before we get to the details, why is it so important that we would even talk about this? Why should we focus on the Trinity? Why should we even tackle something that's so difficult to understand? Well, because the Trinity uh, defines really the essence of our faith. The Trinity really is the is, is the tack point. It is the central point of everything else we understand in Scripture. It is true that if we get the Trinity wrong, that we mess up every other part of our faith. In fact, you can't truly be a Christ follower if you don't understand who Jesus is, and you can't understand who Jesus is unless you understand some biblical truths about the Trinity. In fact, almost every heresy and almost every 
world religion uh, is, is distinguished by the fact that it gets the Trinity wrong. I'll give you some examples. Mormons. Mormons are not Christians. Why is that? Because they get the Trinity wrong. And they answer the question, who is Jesus, in a non-biblical way. And if you get the Trinity wrong and you get Jesus wrong, you can't be a Christian. What's the main difference between Christianity and Mormonism? It's the Trinity. It is who is Jesus. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, the main difference between Christianity and Jehovah's Witness, that faith, and that's a different faith, it's a different religion, even though they have a lot of the same names, they may even use some of the same literature, the difference is, what is the Trinity and who is Jesus? If you get that wrong, it is a different religion. What about Islam? What is the primary difference between Christianity and Islam? Well, the heart of that difference is who is Jesus? And, and, and we would say Jesus is, is, is one thing. We would talk about the Trinity. They would have a whole different view of Jesus. And if you get the Trinity wrong, if you get wrong who is Jesus, then you can't be a Christian. The Trinity is so important. So let's take a few minutes and talk about it. What exactly is the Trinity? It is the belief, the Bible taught doctrine, that we serve one God, one God, there is one God, and he is presented to us in three persons. He exists in three persons. Now I told you that that's hard to understand. There's one God and he is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let's look at revealed scripture. Let's look at Revelation. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is something that we see throughout the Bible. There's no confusion about this. There is only one God. But the scripture also says that God exists in three persons. The same essence, but three persons. Hard for us to wrap our minds around, but let me give you the revelation. Genesis 1.26, this is the creation story. It says that God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. So God in the beginning is creating the world and he's creating man and he says to somebody, let us create man in our image. Now who is God speaking to? Well, he's speaking, the Father is speaking to the Son and he's speaking to the Holy Spirit. That's why it says let us make man in our image. And so there are three persons. But notice there's only one image. He didn't say let us make man in the Holy Spirit's image or in the Son's image, but let us make man in our image, one image, one essence, three persons. We could turn to the first verse of the Gospel of John, and it says this, in the beginning was the Word, and word there refers to Jesus. He tells us a few verses later. In the beginning was the word. So in the beginning, Jesus was there. Jesus wasn't created after the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus was already there. He is God. He was already in the beginning. And the word, it goes on to say, was with God. So Jesus was with God in the beginning. 
It wasn't that the father created the son or even that the son created the father, but both of them were in the beginning already there and they are distinct in some way. That's why it says the son, the word was with the father, with God. They were, they were both there. They were distinct in some way. They were with one another. And then it says, and the word was God. So in one sense, they are distinct. They're separate persons. But in one sense, they are, they are together. They have one essence. The word was with God. Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. We could look at a number of verses. I'll share just one more. Matthew 28, 19, it's the instructions God's given to the church that Jesus gave to the church. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they have one name, one essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not that you need to be baptized three times, one in each name. Uh, it's, it's that there's one baptism because there's one essence, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the best way to explain this, uh, the Trinity, is to use some illustrations. And I love to use illustrations. Now, it's hard to come up with, in fact, it's impossible to come up with a good illustration uh, for the Trinity. Uh, but even sometimes bad illustrations will teach us something. So let me share some with you and I'll show you why they're good and bad. Uh, oftentimes Bible teachers will talk about the Trinity uh, as water. They'll say that water really gives us some insight into understanding the Trinity because water can be in one of three forms. It can be a solid, it can be a liquid, or it can be a gas, yet it's still water. The essence is the same, whether it's ice cubes or, or it's drinking water, the essence is the same, it's water. And so that perhaps does uh, instruct us some, but there's a problem with that. Water can only be one of those at a time, right? Water is either a solid or it's a liquid or it's a gas, it can't be all three at once, and God, is all three at once. It's, it's not that sometimes God is the father and sometimes he is the son. No, God is always the father and God is always the son. And so that illustration breaks down, but it does, it does stretch our minds a little bit to understand how the Trinity uh, might be understood. Uh, some people have suggested it to be a chain in three links. And so you've got a metal chain, it has three links and they're all connected one to the other. And they said, that's a, that's a picture of the Trinity. Well, that, that does show us that uh, they're interconnected, but the problem with a chain with three links is you could, you could pull the links apart, right? And, and really it's three different pieces where uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share the same essence. And so they're not divisible like a link of a chain might be divisible from another one. Some have suggested that we could say uh, God, is, uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sort of like I am a husband, I am a father, uh, and I am a son. Uh, I am a son to my dad, I am a father to my three girls, I am a husband to my wife. Uh, I, I am one person, but I have those three roles. Well, that tells us something about the Trinity because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do have independent roles. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, but it's not a perfect illustration because um, 
because I'm still just one person, right? I mean, I might be a son to somebody and a father to somebody else and a husband to somebody else, but I'm still just one person. And the Bible makes it clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons, three persons. And, and so I've got a whole list of illustrations. Let, let me tell you the best way to understand it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's how God explains it. If there were a better way to explain it, then God would have used that way. Uh, that's, that's the best way we could understand it. In fact, we ought to be careful, uh, especially, and in, in as is, 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 many of you are Bible teachers, and so we, we need to be careful when we talk about the Trinity, comparing it to other things and applying a contemporary illustration to something that God simply says is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, God is not an African-American woman named Papa, and the Holy Spirit is not an Asian woman named Sarayu. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, good. But if you do, I read the book as well. And that borders on blasphemy. We can't give some new popular interpretation. It is as it has been revealed in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say one more thing about the Trinity before we move on to just focusing on Jesus. The Bible says that, that while there's one God in three persons and they share a common essence, they do have different roles. They're, they're doing different things. In fact, I'll point you to one verse. It's an interesting verse because in, in just one verse, John 14, 26, you see all three members of the Trinity. There are only a handful of verses like this in the Bible. But listen to this verse. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, the counselor who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So Jesus is speaking, so he's in the verse. And he says the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to teach you the things I've already taught you and impress them upon your heart. And so you see that they have different roles. Uh, primarily, if we were to talk about the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we'd say the Father sent the Son uh, to come and, and live and, and to die. The Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross. The Father raised the Son from the dead. And the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son and glorifies the Father by communicating what the Son has taught on behalf of the Father. So man, that's, that perhaps is confusing, but it, it, it reminds us that each of them have roles uh, that, they have, um, uh, that they have assumed. We pray, here's another way to see the same thing. We pray to the Father. When we pray, most of the time, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son. We come to the Father on behalf of the Son, by, in the name of the Son, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Somebody said, God thought it, Jesus wrought it, and the Holy Spirit brought it. And so they, they there, there, there's one God, three persons, one essence, three persons, and they have different roles. Now, all of that said, because you see these three, all in these three verses, 9, 10, and 11, who is Jesus? That's what we're focused on today. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. We can't get that confused. Jesus is not God Jr. Jesus is not 
uh, somebody that uh, became divine because God chose them at a later point. No, Jesus is God, has always been God, always will be God, one God, three persons, Jesus is God. He is God and the Son of God. And we see that over and over in Scripture. Let, Let me just give you some evidences. Jesus has the attributes of God. The Bible says that Jesus is eternal. The Bible says that Jesus is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere at once. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. Jesus is omnipotent. He can do all things. Jesus is immutable. He never changes. The attributes of God are all assigned in scripture one at a time to Jesus. Jesus has the offices of God. The Bible says he is the creator. The Bible says he is the sustainer. Jesus has the authority of God. The Bible says he forgives sins. The Bible gives us examples of him raising the dead. The Bible says that he will execute judgment. He has the authority of God. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus claimed to be God Jesus is God. I think one of the best expressions of of who Jesus is in connection with God the Father, because see, we've got to get this right. This 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 would be the beginning of every false religion, of every cult. If we get this wrong, we've got to get this right. And I think one of the best expressions of who Jesus is in relation to the Father is found in Hebrews chapter one. Uh, And I want to read just one verse from that passage, verse three. Listen to this. The Son, speaking of Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And it goes on to say other important things, but let's just stop there. What does it mean that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God? It doesn't mean that the Son reflects the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun but has no light of its own. No, what it says is that that the sun is the expression of God's radiance, of God's glory. He is, in fact, the radiance of the Father. Now, let's think about the sun in the sky, S-U-N, sun. Now, the sun in the sky uh, has a lot of influence here on the earth, right? It makes things bright. It brings heat. The sun has great influence on the earth, but the sun is some 93 million miles away. None of us have ever been there. None of us have ever touched it. The reason the sun, S-U-N, has influence on the earth is because its energy is radiated to us. The, 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 The heat and the light are radiated from the sun to the earth. Well, here it says that Jesus, in a sense, is the radiance uh, of, the, of the glory of the Father. And so the Father is great and wonderful, but we would know that. We couldn't see that. We, could, we would have no understanding of that were it not for Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the radiance. He is the heat. He is the light. He is the energy of the Father uh, that's communicated uh, to us. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Now that brings us to the third question. And this one is a little less obvious, uh, but it's, it's very important. Right at the end of verse 11, you notice that the father speaks to the son 
and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, why would God uh, allow us to know that? Uh, why, why would God say that to the son in, in, in a way that would be recorded for all of history, that we could stand 2,000 years later in Nacogdoches, Texas and read those words? Uh, certainly, the, the father communicated much to the son that we, we have no knowledge of, and, and, and the father must have uh, uh, demonstrated his love for the son in ways that we will never know. But why here does the father say publicly in a way that all people could know and that would be recorded in Scripture that I am pleased with my son? What in the world does that mean? Why is that valuable to us? Well, I want to explain this in a, in a roundabout way by sharing with you something that happened to me on Monday. So Monday morning, I began my devotion time, my time with the Lord. I'm using a resource right now that's bouncing me back and forth in the, in the Psalms. And I'm reading a Psalm and then I, uh, I meditate on its truths and, and then I pray. And that's just what I'm using right now for my devotion. And Sunday, Monday, rather Monday morning, uh, my focus was on Psalm 15. I don't choose the Psalm. It's just, it's in a book that I'm going through and I just do the next one. And Monday morning, it was Psalm 15. Now this message had already been planned. Uh, I hadn't really done any work on it. I had just planned to preach on these next three verses and focus on Jesus. And I, I knew I'd talk about the Trinity. Uh, I knew I would talk about who is Jesus. And, and I probably, when I, when I wrote this schedule down, and uh, distributed it to the staff, I probably planned at the time to use that verse 11 as my ending and to say something like this, that the father said to the son, with you I am well pleased, and then I was gonna look to you and say, you should live a life so that the father one day will say to you, or the father will one day say to me, I am well pleased with you. I've preached that kind of sermon before and used that text before, I'm sure. And, and, and so that was my plan. But I really hadn't started studying the message. This is early Monday morning, and I'm just having my quiet time and focused really on, on me and on the Lord. And I read Psalm 15. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's, it's very brief. I'm just going to read five verses. Verse one says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent and who can live on your holy mountain? Now, that's a good question. It, it basically says, Lord, who who can walk with you? Who can have fellowship with you? Who can live with you in eternity? Who can live with you today? Who can worship? Who can pray? Who can have a connection with the Father? And then it's time to read verse 2. And so verse 2 says, The one who lives blamelessly, who practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Verse 3 now, the one who walks with God is the one who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Verse 4, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keep his, keeps his word whatever the cost. Verse 5, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. And I tell you, that shook me. I 
spent a lot of time just reading back through these verses. And honestly, every single verse, I, I recognize some guilt in my life. It says the one who lives blamelessly, the one who lives with righteousness, the one who doesn't sin. That's what he's talking about. Uh, The one who always embraces the truth, the truth of God in his heart. The one who always says encouraging things and never says something discouraging. The one who accepts whom the Lord accepts and rejects the one the Lord rejects the, the one who never watches something on television who, uh, th- that would make light of sin. The one, the one who, who, who never looks at something that, that would be displeasing to the Lord. The one who always cares for those who are less fortunate. The one who, who is, is free to always use his resources to be a blessing to those who don't have any. The one who lives a perfect life. That's the one who can... Who can walk with the Lord? I don't know about you, but I, I, I trust that you can see how that's not an encouragement, right? And it's, so, you know, it's Monday morning, and Monday morning, are not, that's not a good time slot for pastors. That's, uh, you, we always quit on Monday morning. Uh, it's a discouraging hour. And, and, and I was looking for something encouraging, but, but those verses did not encourage me at all. I was brokenhearted. I, I, I felt hopeless. I started to pray, and even when I started to pray, I was reminded of a verse that I memorized a long time ago, also in the Psalms, Psalm 24, 3 and 4, which asks, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? So who can pray? And the answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I thought, I'm not even able to pray. But then the Lord, the Holy Spirit, reminded me of something. I never have been accepted by God based on my own merit. When I followed Christ as a 17-year-old young man, and Christ accepted me, the Father forgave me, it wasn't because I was living a righteous life. It wasn't because I was worthy. It wasn't because I deserved it. It never has been about me. I'm not a child of God because I follow all the rules. I I, I don't remain a child of God because I I never sin. I, I wasn't worthy to be in his family to begin with, and I've not been worthy one day since then to stay in his family. But it is it's never been about my worthiness. It's never been based on my merit. It's always been based on the merit of Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, the the reason God accepts me is not because of me. It's because Jesus, what Jesus did. It's not because because I've paid for my sins. It's because Jesus has paid for my sins. It's not because I've lived a righteous life. No, it's because I'm in Christ and Christ has lived a, a righteous life. My life is hidden in Christ. Let me read this to you from Romans chapter five. Uh, Verse six says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. When When we were without hope, 
We were given hope, not because we did something, but because Christ did something. I'll skip down a few verses. Verse 10 says, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. I have friendship with God, not because of me, but because of Jesus. The reason I have a friendship with God is because while I was still an enemy of God, Christ stood in my stead. And I am saved through his death. And if you look at the end of that verse, I am saved through his life. He died for my sins. That's why I have forgiveness. He lived a perfect life. That's why I am a friend of the Father. Verse 11 says, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus has made us friends with God. Now, the father says in verse 11 to the son, you are my beloved son and in you I'm well pleased. Now listen church, I believe, and the Lord taught me this on Monday morning, I believe those are the most beautiful words in all the Bible. And here's why. I have read and taught those, that statement. And, uh, and, and there's truth in this. We haven't taught something untrue. But I have read and taught that statement through the years like this. That the Father said to Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now I need to live and you need to live a life so that one day, God will say that to you. Now, you know, if you're wired up like me at all, that every time you've heard somebody say that, or every time you have said it, there's been this sinking realization in your heart that you will never be good enough, that you will never be righteous enough, that you will never be obedient enough. For the father to say, I am well pleased with you. But listen, here's the good news. When God said it to Jesus, God was saying it of us. Because God sees me through Jesus. You understand? This is the most beautiful thing in the Bible. Because if God is well pleased with the son and I am in the Son, then God is well pleased with me. Listen to how Philippians 3.9 says it. I am found in him. I am found in Christ, Paul says. I am found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, Paul says, I'm in Christ, not because I have a righteousness that comes from the law. What does that mean? Not because I have a righteousness that comes from keeping the law. Paul says, I'm righteous, but it's not because I've kept the rules. I am found in him, not because of a righteousness that comes from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. 
Paul says, I come to the Father, not because I am worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And I'm trusting in Christ, that Jesus is my substitute, that his death is the substitute for the penalty of my sins, and his righteous life is the substitute for my unrighteous life. I'm in Christ. And so if the Father says, well done to Christ, then the Father says, well done to me. Now, all that's introduction, don't, don't sweat, the message is short, all right? Three things that that tells us. Because of the merit of Christ, we have grounds for worship. I can come and worship the Father, not because of my personal righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Because God says to Jesus, I am well pleased with you. Isaiah 61.10, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me with the robe of righteousness. The psalmist says I can worship God not because I am worthy, but because I have been clothed in the right righteousness of Christ. Because of the merit of Christ, we have grounds for worship. Because of the merit of Christ, we have grounds for prayer. How can we pray? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews 4.16 that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can come boldly. We can burst through the doors and come before the Father and say, oh, Father, I've got a need and I want you to meet my need. How can we come boldly before the throne of grace? Because we're in Christ. Because God is pleased with Christ and I'm in Christ. It is the grounds of worship. It is the ground of prayer and it is the ground of assurance. Now, there are people certainly who come to church and who don't know Christ as their Savior. There are people here just statistically, there are, pe there are people here this morning that, who, who are not genuine Christians because you're trying to keep the rules and you're trying to earn your way to righteousness. You're trying to be accepted by God because you're doing better instead of trusting in Christ. And there are certainly people here like that. And I implore you, trust in Christ. That's your only hope. But listen, there are also people here who have put their trust in Christ, but who, who lack an assurance of their salvation, who live in fear, who live under condemnation. The fact that Christ is accepted by the Father grounds for our assurance because our salvation, we know that, most of us know that when we came to Christ and Christ accepted us, it was not because we earned it, but listen, but we, we stay accepted by Christ, not because we earned it, but because of Christ. Nothing you could do could make God love you more and nothing you have done has made God love you less because you're in Christ and the Father is well pleased with him. We need to learn to accept this. We need to learn to live by the faith that brought us into the family, that that's the faith that keeps us in the family. We need to learn to thank God that he sees us through the person of Christ. We need to surrender, not by saying, Lord, I will do better, I'll do better, I'll do better, I promise, I'll never do that again, I'll never do that again. And, and we need to come to God with God, I surrender to you because you already accepted me. I don't have to earn your acceptance. And I want you to help me change my life because I want my life to bring greater honor to you. But I come to you on the grounds that you are pleased with Christ. And I ask you to do a work in my life as a result. 
Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I know this is, this is hard to understand and I, I fear I've not communicated well, but listen. When you hear those words, when you read those words in scripture, where the father says to Jesus, I am well pleased with you. Here's what I want you to hear. If you are in Christ, those words are to you too. I know we beat ourselves up and we certainly should confess our sins and strive to live lives to honor the Lord, absolutely. But the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When God the Father looks at me, he accepts me not based on whether or not I've been especially obedient this last week, but he accepts me based on what Christ has done. And if that doesn't make you excited, if that doesn't make you thankful, if that doesn't make you want to surrender, then you don't really understand the grace and mercy of the Father. Father, help us today to not live under the condemnation, but to know that since you're pleased with Christ, that you are pleased with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.